This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right. Uh, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We had a bunch of headlines with U.S. new cases topping 89,000, setting a daily record. We know global infections are surpassing 45 million. And we are seeing really Europe grappling to control a renewed surge in the disease. This as we continue to see work done uh, and moving forward on a vaccine. Let's get to our weekly chat. I love this with Dr. Ian Lospader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us once again on the phone in New York. Dr. Lospader, nice to have you here. Ian, how are you? Uh, very well. Thanks, Carol. Happy Friday. And uh, uh. definitely green is good. Um, so uh, up, up and away would be uh, is always good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I think it's been a jam-packed week. We're getting ready for another one on the news front because of the election. But we're also, I think, there's safe to say uh, a new round of stress as we start to see or we continue to see that these, you know, virus case, cases, hospitalizations rise uh, around the country, around the world. I mean, we're well into what, the second wave here or at least the oh, beginning yeah, of it in the U.S.? Yeah. Definitely. You know, we are, uh, as we've said before on the show, you know, we've seen these waves with other pandemics. This is not the uh, first or the last pandemic we'll see. Unfortunately, uh, you know, humans all suffer from recency bias. We're always fighting the last war. And uh, candidly, uh, we were, and globally, I think, unprepared. And I think we've tried to uh, aggressively pursue this. The vaccines are coming. The preliminary data that I've seen uh, look very good. You know, with antibody titers, uh, we talked about that last week, right. the levels the, that, that are actually higher um, and seem to last longer than in people who actually have the disease. Now, you know, will every vaccine do this and will people need more than one vaccine possibly? Um, and we've certainly spent a lot of capital, uh, time and energy and billions of dollars on that. But it's so unusual to be able to get a vaccine in under a year. Usually this takes a long time. So I think um, we were really unprepared. Uh, Humans are always fighting the last war. But I think we've responded well. And in any war, you know, there are winners and losers. And certainly a lot of companies are are getting a lot of money. And hopefully it will be worth it. You know, it's interesting. We had a conversation. The cover story of Bloomberg Business Week magazine is all about Operation Warp Speed and and particularly one company that's really involved in terms of the logistics of getting, getting this out. But what's interesting is we had some discussions, Ian, about you know, normally when there's a drug development, we don't hear about all the testing. We don't hear about the setbacks, which is a normal part of, right, creating, you know, sure. a, a vaccine, if you will, or, or, or a treatment that has to go through all the, the phased trials of testing. So, you know, in, in some ways, there's a lot of transparency on this process, which is great, right? But it also maybe ups the anxiety about whether or not do I want to take this vaccine because it's happening so fast and there's been setbacks. But that's, I mean, it's not dissimilar to something that often takes a lot longer. 
For, for that's definitely true. You know, the data I've seen, not not to push a vaccine or another, mm-hmm. the data that I've seen is uh, carefully done studies, and certainly the clinical studies and phase three studies uh, are not being rushed. They're accumulating patients. They're doing very careful follow-up and blood testing. So my sense is that that these um, uh, these studies are, are being done very carefully, and I certainly would feel comfortable, based on what I'm seeing, to be early in line uh, or even join a study uh, to see uh, how uh, effective it is. But I, I'm encouraged, and I think we we don't have a lot of other options. Uh, either we succumb to uh, shutdowns and, and uh, um, slowing economy and, and, and a higher death rate, or we sort of step up to the plate. We've talked about last week, and we can talk against some individual responsibility. What can we do individually while we're waiting? We can talk about that if you wish. Well, talk a little bit about that, because I do think that's important. You know, we, we kid, we joke, but we it's not a joke. You know, the whole idea of social distancing and wearing masks, I mean, there are things that you can do that make a significant impact. No question about it. Uh, I just had a patient, or several patients actually, uh, who uh, have come in for follow-ups, and and we're talking about flu shots and encouraging Mm -hmm. people to get flu shots, and there are actually rumors on the internet that the flu shot um, increases your risk of COVID-19, which is completely untrue. Uh, They're referring to a a study uh, previously about flu shots, and they actually help protect against several other viruses, interestingly enough, RSV and other viruses. Um, but for some other coronaviruses, non-COVID-19 viruses, there was a slight increased incidence of them. They're basically like common cold viruses, other coronaviruses. And some people you know, seem to think that that was increased risk, but in fact, it's not. So I think we need to educate people. I think we need to reassure people. Because, as you say, this is a very dynamic time. You know, the good news is uh, uh, that it really is a a less than 5% uh, death rate. It's about globally about 3%. And various countries are higher or lower. Uh, So it's a 97%, you know, survival rate. And again, how do we focus on that 3%? So you know, lose weight, get your blood sugars under control, wear a mask, do social distancing, hand washing. Uh, There are individual things that we can do. And in past wars, you know, uh, uh, global wars, everybody participated. There there should not be this, you're on one side or I'm on the other. Dr. Lespader, I thought what was interesting, Charlie, in his report talking about uh, from the team over at uh, Johns Hopkins, this whole idea of kind of what worked over the summer doesn't work now. I mean, the conditions have changed, especially as it gets colder, we're inside more, um, there's gatherings, and let's kind of throw on top of it pandemic fatigue. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, uh, both of you are quite right that as it gets colder, it's much harder for people to eat outdoors or socialize outdoors. Uh, and there is pandemic fatigue uh, to some degree. In retrospect, uh, I believe it was actually Jeff Gundlach who had said, I think back in February, let's just close the country down for four weeks. Mm-hmm. That might have made um, a big difference, but people were in, certainly in New York City, for, for several months. And um, there were really emotional and psychological consequences, not to mention economic. And I think that's the difference between Asia or certain parts of Asia, if we can believe those numbers, uh, where you can lock down a city of 40 million and say no one in, no one out. Very tough to do that in free societies and, and open societies. So we're, we're back to uh, simpler methods until we get a vaccine. 
Do you not believe the numbers out of China? I know we have to be smart and cautious, but do you not? Uh, you know, I think it's hard to know, and I think yeah. in a way it, it doesn't really matter because we have to deal with what we have to deal with here, which is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, airplanes coming in and out and people traveling around. And, and honestly, the the uh, screening people with uh, just uh, shooting a temperature at them to, to check their temperature is a very inefficient. People can be mm-hmm. – uh, 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 harboring the virus for for several days and be infectious without really having symptoms so and masks as well back in 1918 everyone wore cloth masks uh, and we had 50 million worldwide dead we actually uh, uh, fortunately have much lower numbers it's about um, uh, um, over a million worldwide so uh, not to compare one virus to another they're, they're definitely different viruses but I think it's harder in an open traveling society to uh, lock it down quite as effectively and therefore we have to rely on individuals taking responsibility with masks and losing weight and maybe taking some vitamin D and and being healthy and using uh, intelligence you know to to protect themselves well what's interesting too and and I just want to follow on that because we did we did have a, a- an interesting story um, earlier this week on the Bloomberg that just talked about a record 200 days with no local case, making Taiwan the world's envy, basically saying, you know, that they have the world's best virus record by far. And I, and I do the caveat of you said, we, you know, if we can trust all the numbers. But what's interesting is they did talk about closing borders early, tightly regulating travel. Um, they do talk about rigorous contact tracing, which I feel like it's been tough to really get off the ground here in the United States. They also, though, talked about Taiwan's deadly experience with SARS and how it scared people into compliance. And I wonder if how big a factor that is based from what Asia had to deal with and that knowledge having gone through that before versus, you know, maybe our lack of that experience um, here in the United States. No, I agree. Look, Taiwan is a relatively small island. True. And they can really, they're surrounded by water. They can certainly seal their borders uh, and and can function independently, certainly for a period of time. I think it's less realistic in Europe and the United States to do something like that. I certainly support kind of a universal mask mandate. I think we're kidding ourselves to say that will stop things in its track, but I think simple things like that, if people would get on board, would certainly slow things until we do get the vaccine, and hopefully people will will be encouraged. I, I'm, I'm concerned uh, exactly as you report that people have hesitancy. They think uh, uh, Operation Warp Speed is too too fast, as outlined in the Bloomberg article. I'm not sure that's really true. I, I mm. do think a lot of companies have benefited financially enormously. This happens in war. Those military uh, material suppliers <laughs> always do well. Right. Uh, and I think in this COVID war, uh, some drug companies maybe unfairly have been uh, rewarded. But I do feel safety precautions have been uh, pretty careful. All right. And, and I'm just just real quickly, just got about 20 seconds. Are you guys seeing at NYU, uh, Langone, seeing an increase in cases coming into the hospital, COVID? Slightly, but not okay. a huge surge. So okay. uh, there are pockets uh, in New York and Brooklyn and others where, uh, you know, there are gatherings without masks. So we are seeing a slight uptick, nowhere near what was previous, but there's still, you know, yeah. we're still early in the winter. 
All right. Always great to check with you, uh, check in with you. Have a good weekend, a safe weekend. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, uh, joining us on the phone from New York City. Coming up, we're going to check in with uh, one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. It's also uh, from Bloomberg Business Week, and it talks about uh, a well-known quant firm and how they are taking your election bets. And, of course, rather timely with the election, of course, just around the corner. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Got a great story for you all. This story, it's in the magazine this week, which is hitting newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. It's also among our most read on the Bloomberg terminal today. There's an investment angle. There's an election angle. It's about the well-known quant trader known for its interest in statistics of gambling, and it's ready to be on the other side of big presidential wagers. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa. She's on the phone in New York City and also with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. There's always a way to make money off of everything, it feels like, Joel. Yeah, well, you know, and you can spend that money on, uh, you know, the New York Mets if you're Steve Cohen or, True. you know, if you have uh, other other deep pockets and change, you can also uh, wager on the outcome of the U.S. election, which basically got my attention when Annie came to us with this story. And um, it actually, I always, my ears always perk up whenever she says something about Susquehanna, because that's uh, just a company that I find very interesting for their interest in, in um, probability in the right. in the biggest sense. But that also comes down to things like games and outcomes of presidential elections. So, right. so Annie, um, hundred million dollars is the cap. Um, how much? Uh, how much you got going into to the bet? <laughs> I haven't gotten involved personally because I'm in the U.S. where it isn't legal, and this prospect they're kind of raising for people to bet in uh, the U.K. where these kinds of political betting markets are illegal. You have to be based over there. So it's not available to us today, but who knows? In the future, it could be. Sports betting obviously has been legalized in some states. So tell us what's going on. Tell us what they're up to here. The idea is that Susquehanna, which, as Joel mentioned, has a big interest in gaming and probabilities, games like poker, backgammon, and also political betting, um, has this a farm in Dublin that uh, does sports betting and also um, betting on political outcomes. And so there are exchanges in the UK where um, you can bet on things like the outcome of the US presidential election. And what Susquehanna is proposing is they kind of sit behind the scenes um, on these exchanges. And if you were a hedge fund um, or you know a big better based abroad in the UK, you could go to one of these exchanges and place a pretty large bet on the outcome of the election. And um, Susquehanna uh, might be one of the kind of market makers on the other end uh, willing to take the other side. And, and Annie, um, give us a sense of like, were you able to figure out how many people have actually participated in this uh, wager yet at Susquehanna? Yeah, it, I mean, it bears mentioning it has not really been um, picking up a whole lot of speed on Wall Street, but I got interested in this idea of whether financial firms would ever be interested um, one day in getting involved in more size in these political betting markets. And you can bet on all kinds of outcomes beyond just the idea of who's going to win the presidency. You can bet on you know, what day will the winner be called? Will it be, you know, November 3rd, election night, or will it last, you know, will it 
go out to November 4th or 5th or 6th if um, votes are still being counted. You can bet on, you know, what margin will they win by, individual states and how they'll go. So there's all kinds of outcomes that you can bet on on these markets. Um, the options are kind of limitless. And I was curious to see if there's any history there of um, financial firms betting on political outcomes. And it actually turns out that in the U.S., um, up through World War II, it, it was, there was actually a very big uh, political betting market that operated on the curb exchange, which later became the American exchange. Um, so, and, you know, it only kind of went away as polling and more types of gambling uh, became more widespread and accessible. Um, you, you know, Annie, one of the things that uh, companies the story is, uh, you mentioned it, this predict it um, data on uh, on which day of the week uh, the election will be determined. And according to the chart that accompanied the story, it's it's Wednesday, November 4th it has the has the most um, action on it. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, as you sort of have talked to, uh, um, you know, the, all, all the people in this sort of space, are they, are, do they think that the activity will ramp up between now and the end? Or, or is it going to become a little bit more muted since uncertainty will obviously be the name of the game? It seems like there actually has been uh, a bit more action in the past couple of days. Um, as I was reporting the story, there had been a total of about $200 million bet on just the winner um, of, of the U.S. presidential election on Betfair um, in the U.K., which is one of the exchanges. And um, it's been just over the course of the time that I was reporting the story out, that jumps to over $260 million. So, I mean... These aren't these aren't by any means like huge eye popping figures by Wall Street standards that are pretty small. Um, but I mean, there was a pickup that I saw even over the course of writing the story as we got closer to the presidential election. I have to say, Annie, I do love like you know the UK where they just kind of dice and slice and bet on everything, and it's it's certainly very a, diff a different world here in the US. But I do wonder, you know, could it be pending the outcome of the election itself, you know, that changes or impacts the regulatory environment? I mean, I, I wonder if there is enough demand for something like this here in the US. Yeah, it's a great question. Sports betting has only recently um, there was a, a federal ban lifted on it, and now states are free to. Um, legalize sports betting. And so, you know, you wonder whether political betting could ever come into the mix, too. Something we mentioned in the story, though, is there's already evidence that regulators uh, don't love that idea. There was an exchange that tried to lift um, a, a kind of, uh, like, a futures derivative product on, based on the outcome of the 2012 election. So right. that would be on a regular derivatives exchange, but kind of, like, almost a political betting type product. And the CFTC kind of struck that down saying, you know, that, that could really get into murky territory um, and damage the integrity of elections. And it's not really clear what it would be used for as a hedging product. So I think that that shows that maybe regulators don't have a great taste in their mouth about uh, political betting markets just yet in the U.S. And, you know, one other thing that just bears mentioning in uh, in your story, Annie, is, uh, you know, that there are other ways to express bets on elections. And, you know, uh, places like J.P. Morgan, uh, mm -hmm. as you write, strategists there have created, you know, a Trump basket and a Biden basket of stocks that they think could do well depending on which administration. But 
obviously that that kind of technique has not worked in the past based on you know certain stocks that end up uh outperforming their expectations uh as well which all goes back to the idea of you know it's it's ultimately that's why why, why it's just gone is willing to <laughs> let you wager a million dollars because no one knows and all i can think about is 2016 election night when futures tanked and then the next day the market rallied so nothing is for sure um joel thank you so much joel weber of course editor of bloomberg business week and annie massa investing reporter at bloomberg news I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading day, getting ready to wrap up the entire week. And we know it's uh, certainly been a tricky one for equities. Uh, back with us for the drive to the close, Ryan Dietrich, senior market strategist at LPL Financial. They've got uh, roughly $800 billion, uh, in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, nice to have you back with us. Before we get into the markets, uh, there's so much going on. But I do want to ask you, uh, how's it going in Charlotte? Hey, Carol. Thank you for having me back. Things are going all right. You know, we had that hurricane come through just yesterday, yeah, and right. literally schools were canceled, tons of wind, and it was, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, a rough, uh, rough day, kind of summarizing 2020, I think, for sure. But overall, you know, we're slowly kind of doing things. My daughter is A-Day, B-Day right now in January. I think they're going to go to full-time, although obviously we can talk about all the cases that are spiking. That might change, but... um. We're hanging in there, I guess, down here in Charlotte's best way to put it. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I think, you know, certainly as individuals and certainly as investors, we're trying to gauge, okay, how things are going, what we're seeing in terms of these virus cases, because it's all connected, right? What happens with the virus is certainly impacting uh, our world, our health, our economy, uh, and really Mm -hmm. gives us an idea of maybe what's to come over the next few months. And ultimately, it'll play out in the financial markets as well. So what are your expectations? Because you are watching those numbers go up. Yeah, I mean, you know, and let's not forget, I mean, financial markets, they tend to lead, right? I mean, they yep. tend to kind of react before the economic data, honestly. And just today, I mean, the thing that got us today was that consumer spending number up 1.4% uh, month over month in September. Mm-hmm. We've had five straight months of at least 1% gain in consumer spending. We've never seen that. That data goes back to the 1960s. Now, I'm aware that's because of a huge drop in March and April. But the one thing I think is guests come on with you, and as we talk with our LPL advisors, everyone is so surprised at the resiliency of the U.S. consumer. I and mean, we know the economy is not perfect, but they, they make up 70% of GDP. We all know that GDP number yesterday. So the consumer, with all the bad things that are happening, is still spending. And that is one big positive, we think, as we head into 2021, and likely the economy continues to expand. Do you think it continues, though, that especially if we see a sh- another shutdown of some sorts, we're still waiting on? some kind of stimulus who knows if we we ultimately get it i mean there are people out there you know the stories and we've talked with it Mm -hmm. before people who are just you know barely getting by just trying to pay the rent or put food on the table 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, there, there will be help coming for them. Unfortunately, I think it's taken a lot longer. Remember, we all thought it would be August 6th when uh, mm-hmm. Congress went to the summer recess. Well, that didn't happen. But, you know, just look at the market signals, right? I mean, if you look at copper, I mean, copper has been really strong. Copper versus gold has been strong. That's normally a sign of an improving economy. Look at the right. 10-year yield today. 10-year yield's up today. We had that big down day the other day. 10-year yield was higher. So bond market is maybe telling us a little bit, you know, are we listening to it, that, hey, yes, stocks are volatile, there's an election next week, there's COVID, all these concerns, we get it. But the bond market and the credit markets, they're still suggesting potentially, you know, uh, an improving economy, which I know is a little opposite to what people expect, but I'm not going to ignore what the bond market's saying here. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been talking to you about the gold trade, that you would anticipate that everybody would be running to gold, and yet we nece- we haven't necessarily really seen that play out. So, let me also ask you about the tech earnings, right? There's been so much momentum in the financial markets this year, uh, thanks to the tech sector. Um, a slew of earnings, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Twitter. Uh, how do you assess the results that we got and what it tells us about maybe their fortunes to come, so, especially like maybe over the next six to 12 months? Absolutely. Well, we still like technology the next mm. six to 12 months, but right here and right now, I think it tells us that bar was awfully high because what they said wasn't all that bad. But boy, those stocks are really getting pounded right now, as, as you just discussed. And, you know, it, it, it makes it sense to us that maybe there's a little bit more of a correction in technology here. But again, when you look out into next year, technology is still one of those areas that are going to have a lot of earnings growth. And don't forget, historically speaking, we have a low inflation, low growth, low rates world. What tends to do well in that scenario? It's growth stocks as investors reach for growth, and specifically technology. So we're not. We, we'd actually think about using this um, pullback in tech recently as an opportunity to potentially add to positions that you're willing to hold the next six to twelve months. Is how we're viewing it right here. So it sounds like you still like the growth play, not necessarily the value play. Yeah, we, we definitely still side with growth a little bit over value, but at the same time, we're saying maybe bar, take a barbelled approach, you know, stick with who got us here, communications and the growth names and tech names. But on the other side of things, those industrials and materials still look pretty good. We're not too warm and fuzzy about financials. That's the other part of the cyclical value trade. Mm-hmm. But industrials and materials, really, as the economy comes back, and if we get more, we're going to get an infrastructure plan, likely whoever wins this next election next week. You think uh, so? Can be, you think so? Yeah. We do. We think it would probably be a bigger infrastructure plan, obviously, if Joe Biden wins. But we do expect if President Trump were to win next week, sometime in 2021, we'll probably get an infrastructure bill. It won't be quite as large, but mm-hmm. that could still be a tailwind for those industrials and materials, which have done quite well the last three months. So what – I don't know. I'm curious about the discussions you guys are having, uh, Ryan, when it comes to the election. Listen, you can look at history and you can look at you know right. trends, um, but I do wonder if something maybe is a little bit different this time around because of COVID and the impact on the economy. But how do you see the election, the outcome – uh, potentially impacting the markets. Yeah, in the near term, historically, you get a little bit of a sell-off ahead of an election. We're seeing that. And then once you get the election out of the way, markets tend to rally once that uncertainty is relieved. But, you know, what did, what one of the four most dangerous words in investments, right? This time is different. We all know that. But, boy, oh, boy, this time sure does feel different with COVID and all the different scenarios that are out there. Our big take is this. Whoever wins this election, as we head into 2021, has an economy that's slowly expanding, that's likely not going to be in a recession, that might see 20% earnings growth in large caps and almost 100% earnings earnings growth in small caps, that's a pretty good elixir uh, for higher equity prices. And to kind of put a bow on this, in 2016, a lot of people didn't like President Trump for four years. There's been hundred, almost 150 new all-time highs in the S&P for eight years of President Obama. They didn't really like him or his policies, potentially. The stocks did well then. So it's important to separate who you're voting for with really uh, your investments. It's a very important thing to remember there.
All right. Yeah, kind of, it'll be an interesting week. Do you expect um, volatility next week because of the election outcome or not necessarily? No, we do. You look at the VIX, the VIX has obviously been quite high. So we think a little bit more volatility next week um, is probably going to be in the cards, unfortunately, for investors. But again, it's an opportunity because we're probably not going to have a recession next year. And that's still a chance to add to positions from a longer term point of view. All right. A little bit of optimism there. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Ryan Dietrich, he's Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina, where, again, another part of the country where they're seeing those virus cases go up. They've got about $800 billion in assets under management. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.